Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Helen Parr, a historian whose new book is called Our Boys, The Story of a Paratrooper. And it's much more than the story of one paratrooper, but let's start with that one paratrooper, Helen. This was your uncle Dave. Can you tell me a bit about him? He lost his life in the Falklands. That's right. So he joined the parachute regiment more or less straight from school when he was 17. And two years later, he went to the Falklands with two para. And he he had a kind of interesting war, I suppose, in one sense, because neither sort of traditionally heroic nor that tragic it's he sustained an injury at goose green quite early on into the into the goose green battle so it's quite extraordinary to think that he he thought he'd been shot well he he was hit by a bullet that managed to hit his belt and land in his belly button without breaking the skin so reading between the lines i think he you know, he was knocked over by the force of the of the blow and he probably thought that he'd been mortally wounded but of course he hadn't he'd sustained a nasty bruise so he was evacuated to the field hospital and then after the battle of goose green he came back to the battalion and then he went forward with two para to wireless ridge which was the final battle in the hills around port stanley and he was he was killed by british artillery accidentally in that battle and I mean, there's that very kind of poignant bit where he's... There's somebody you interviewed, I think, who said, you know, you told him to go back to the troops and he could have sort of gone home or stayed behind the lines, couldn't he? That's right. I mean, I think the reality was, once he was in the field hospital, he wasn't badly wounded. And I think he probably could have had the option of of not coming back to the battalion. He could have had the option of, of coming home early. But I think everyone would always have known that he hadn't been badly wounded. And I think the reality was Paras are a tough and highly disciplined regiment. If he'd done that, I think he must have known that his career as a paratrooper would have been over. And I think that's why he he probably opted to come back. And what was it that made you... I mean, your background, as we were just saying, now you're a political and diplomatic historian, you know, in your previous work. What made you want to write this book? Or, you know, where did the idea of doing this come from? It's a good question. I always wanted to do something about the Falklands, but it was actually quite difficult to know how best to do it. And when I started to do the research for the book, I I began by interviewing some of the men who served alongside my uncle. And I could see quite rapidly that I couldn't write it unless I tried to understand it from their point of view. So, you know, my uncle was a private in the parachute regiment, but I don't come from a military family. And paratroopers have a very particular mentality. They're an elite. They pride themselves on their kind of ability to to endure extremes. And I really wanted to try and understand how this looked to them. But at the same time, I didn't want to write a conventional military history. I wanted to write something which put that very symbolic military episode into a much wider social context. So I wanted to understand, you know, the sort of 1970s society from which these young men had come. And I wanted to understand the way in which people experienced the aftermath of the Falklands and what that can kind of tell us almost sideways about the 1980s. Yes, no, it's a, it's a book that you know sets a lot of hairs running. And one of them is this thing of what it is to be a para, because you know the, their history, which you set out very deftly in an early chapter, is, is sort of punctuated by these kind of almost mythological punctuation marks, you know, Arnhem, first of all, and then, I guess, you know, Bloody Sunday. And what effect does that have on it? Because, you know, 
Arnhem and the early history of the parachute regiment was one of you know disaster and trauma a lot of the time. You know, I mean, when the, the Second World War, they were forever being you know dropped into swamps and the tops of volcanoes and trees and absolutely. You know. I mean, it's one of the things I found really interesting about it. Actually, was this history that does have these sort of mythological foundations, if you like. The first of which is that you know they're formed in. June 1940, or or they begin to be formed in June 1940, this moment of kind of Britain's greatest peril as it potentially faces a, a Nazi invasion. Then there's the Battle of Arnhem in 1944, which is which is their most famous battle, which of course is a military defeat for the Allied forces, but which is kind of seen by the paratroopers as showing the best of their of their spirit, of their regimental spirit, because although they're defeated, they hold out for longer than expected against odds that are almost unendurable. And it's that sense, that sense that, you know, that they will not surrender that defines the way that they want to think about themselves and the way that they want to be seen. So, of course, then in the post-war period, I think a lot of people do question, do we really need a highly disciplined spearhead unit that's going to drop behind enemy lines and, uh, you know, uh, do dangerous things um, in that manner? And by the 1970s, I think that that questioning has got quite acute. And, of course... One of the main reasons why I think they come under scrutiny in the 1970s is because of Bloody Sunday, as you said. So it's members of one para who shoot dead unarmed Irish civilians uh, on a civil rights march in Londonderry on the 30th of January 1972. And that does paint the paras in a in a rather more ambiguous light. There's a very kind of unexpected irony. I mean, we point out that Ian Mackay, who was one of the two VCs in the Falklands, the Savile Inquiry discovered that he was one of the soldiers, you know, a soldier T, I think, Private T, was he, in Bloody Sunday. Absolutely. So, yeah, he was Private Soldier T who discharged two shots from his rifle while lying in the car park of the Rossside Flats on Bloody Sunday. And then, of course, ten years later, Sergeant Ian McKay wins the Victoria Cross for his extraordinary bravery on Mount Longdon. And that illustrates perhaps better than anything else partly the way in which the reputation of the regiment is transformed by the Falklands but also partly I suppose what you might kind of think of as being a dark side of violence that is there in the 1970s I think. Yeah, I mean you do go very deeply into the psychology of it and you know and I think you were saying that you didn't want to do military history in the sort of traditional you know flanking maneuvers and enfilades and stuff you're very detailed about what actually happens on the battlefield but it's very much through I guess a lot of interviews is it with the surviving combatants and one of the things that comes out is you say that the fear that they all feel and that they're always feeling isn't just a sort of so much a fear of death as a fear of being sort of unmanned or being not a good enough para that there's a sort of sense that their identity is so bound up in that esprit that that's the I know I, th- I think that was one of the things that struck me most powerfully was how they regard the battle experience through the lens of the regiment and I think well two things really I, I mean firstly I did rely on a lot of interview testimony but at the same time I also wanted to make sure that I got the details right insofar as I could so I tried to put the interview material into the context of the progression of the battles and I think by doing so it was then possible to see in sort of more depth what the experience was like partly you know why they experienced what they experienced but also how they 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 came to think about it and that was then 
the thing that, that made an enormously powerful impression, this sense that what they cared about was doing their best in battle. And so if things didn't quite go as they expected, and of course they often didn't go as they expected, the feeling could be almost unbearable. The feeling of being injured, people saw it as being their fault if they'd put themselves into a, into a position where they'd, they'd got injured and then felt dreadful, not so much for themselves, but because they'd left their men on the ground or because they weren't then there to support their friends. Yeah, so somebody who's badly wounded who says, you know, I just wanted to have a gun in my hand so that if... The- absolutely, absolutely. I think he said, you know, that, that feeling helpless, not being able to fight back, not being able to be part of the regiment that he loved to, sort of, to do this thing that he was good at, uh, to not be able to do that. It was an experience of kind of, of I don't know, having your whole world view overturned. And how possible is it? I mean, you're, you're very conscious of this in the early chapters. You said that you're a civilian. How possible is it for you to do you think, enter into that mindset to actually sort of understand it? I don't know. But I think that perhaps one of the advantages I had, if you like, is that because I was so aware that it was something that was unusual to me, I really wanted to try to understand it. And I think perhaps, you know, it's more common that people write military history when they've been attached to to or they've had some sort of part in military life. And perhaps I wanted to really try to examine assumptions that people often take for granted. So I really set out to listen to what people said to me and maybe not for me to say whether I've got it right or not. Well, I mean, presumably you've heard from some of the people you've spoken to who were there yeah how has their reaction to the book been so far it's been extremely positive i think people have appreciated the attention to detail that i've given it and um have said that i've captured something about the experience you're quite tough particularly when you're going through bloody sunday on not making excuses for the things that were done there is that sensitive because you know as you say these are sort of mythological moments in the history of the powers are they sensitive about bloody sunday are they sensitive about arnhem i know you know anthony beavers just published a book in which arnhem is presented as just a colossal cock up and a waste of time basically yeah how much does that undermine their sense of sort of i think they are sensitive about it but i think they also have to be realistic about it i mean perhaps particularly with something like bloody sunday i think they have to accept that if things like that happen then they ought to be investigated so i don't know there might be people who never want to hear unglorious things said about the regiment but i think if you want to write a realistic history then you have to take those things on and actually in the falklands there was this accusation this guy mclaughlin was collecting ears in the manner of a vietnam but you that slightly murky in the book as to whether that actually happened is that because we just don't know i think it's because it has been quite strongly refuted recently so it's obviously something which a lot of the soldiers in the ranks feel quite strongly didn't happen and i think you know the fact that they feel that so strongly illustrates something about how mclaughlin was viewed by them he showed quite inspirational leadership during the course of the battle and that's something which they think ought to be recognized and the other allegations either dismissed or ignored i don't think that there can now be definitive evidence about it so there was a a metropolitan police inquiry 10 years after the falklands which didn't find enough evidence to to mount a prosecution it was that allegation alongside the allegation that one soldier executed an argentine prisoner in cold blood but i think that the lesson is is that when there are allegations of those nature that they need to be investigated at the time, at source. It needs to be sorted out and then it can't fester or linger afterwards. Do you think there's a particular sort of masculinity and, you know, it's, you know you're coming to this as a female historian, do you, do you think that's a kind of just a given of the way in which people who are going to fight have to be conditioned to fight? I think that it's... 
you know they're called the toms and, you know, there's this whole... <laughs> yeah i think i think yes but i also think that it's in some ways it's quite specific to that era so i think it's still an era that where the legacy of world war ii weighs very heavily on them and the idea that serving your country is the kind of the pinnacle of masculine duty is very heavily sort of engraved in, in their mindsets and in, in the way in which they think so i think that the way in which they're trained it forces them to you know becoming a parrot is becoming a man so it's something where you give your whole being to the regiment and these were boys as well we should say when they join up they're generally absolutely kind of teenagers they're a absolutely. lot of them as you describe are leaving kind of quite sketchy backgrounds often yes yeah absolutely actually there is a sort of detail in the book when almost what you say most accounts of battle from second world war to right down to medieval times stress a kind of sexual frisson in the aggression you say in the falklands there is no well they just don't it's just quite interesting that they don't talk about it in that way because if you read you know multiple accounts from the first world war the second world war from vietnam there is that sort of that sexual undercurrent or not even you know sometimes quite explicitly sexual tone that comes out and it just hasn't been recorded like that and i suspect it's because they're professional soldiers and therefore they've been trained and perhaps they've also been trained how to talk about it afterwards. But the other thing that struck me is that, you know, in the training, I think sometimes it's easy to assume that there's a sort of connection between sexuality and killing, especially, you know, killing with a bayonet, uh, you know, sort of obvious act of pen- penetration. But what struck me is that it's much more about aggression and competition and that the sort of defining act of training is this moment of milling this one minute when they have to fight against a, a, a comrade and it's a sort of yes yeah, so talk about milling because i hadn't come across that before what's... <laughs> no well it's kind of no rules boxing where they have to get their they've got gloves but no head protection that that's like right that? yeah they're paired off and they have to fight against each other for a minute and the sole objective is to be aggressive is to show your aggressive instinct and mostly they talk about that you know as being the moment that they knew that that was when they could kind of stand in these elite footsteps and 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 really become a para but i think it, what it shows is that the sort of the root of the training is 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 competition it's being aggressive enough strong enough and determined enough to beat another man in combat and that then means and going back to what you know this term toms so that the nickname for the the paratroopers in the ranks is, is toms with which is you know comes from tomcats sort of sexually promiscuous uh, and you know as the creme to the creme of the infantry they sort of thought that they should be able to take their pick of, of women now another point you make about the parachute regiment is that they at least nominally don't have quite the same kind of class structure as the traditional british army that you know i mean one of the things you said it's quite interesting is that the history of britain's relationship with its military at least until the first world war was not one in which we identified very strongly as a military nation, you know, we're not sort of Prussian. But that changed after the First World War and the run-up to the Second. There was a whole, you know, a lot of politicians came from the military, but there was a sort of public school office class and a working class, you know, enlisted men. And that in the powers, it's, it's less exact than that, is that? I think so? it's less exact than that. So, you know, one of the sort of really important ideas in their ethos is that they are more meritocratic than other 
sort of older, more traditional army regiments. And I think that that is probably true. But I think also, you know, in this period, it is still the case that the majority of officers come from from public school backgrounds or from established military families. Uh, it's it's sort of it's beginning to change. There are more men who have a university education, for example, who are kind of becoming officers in the parachute regiment. It's completely different to today. I mean, now a majority of officers would have a, a university education, but in that period, I think you know they they are more meritocratic than than other units, but they do still have this kind of this this traditional this traditional core. And in the ranks, I think they do come from often from very deprived backgrounds or from sort of working class backgrounds. I think often they leave school having done very poorly at school, survey the options that are then open to them and think, I don't want to spend the rest of my life going down the pit or working in a factory and they want to do something sort of more exciting with their lives. They have to probably be relatively determined if they then want to go on to pass the paratraining. Yeah, which is, which is as you lay out, very hard. Now, talk a bit about the when they came home, because you have the, you know, the bootnecks all coming into kind of 21 gun salutes in Portsmouth and cheering crowds and all the rest of it. And the Paris didn't have that experience at all, did they? No, they fly home from Ascension Island. So they take a, a boat back to Ascension and then fly home. So I think most of the people who I spoke to about the experience of arriving back in England after having been out there in the Falklands is that it's extremely strange. You know, obviously they're pleased they're still alive, that they come home and, and they can get on with their lives, I suppose a lot of them do. But also, you know, one of them said it was as like he was in a parallel universe. Everything else was the same. But he felt he was fundamentally different and it was very, very difficult to adjust to that. And they, also, which I hadn't known, obviously the wounded were sort of hidden. I mean, they come back into Bryce Norton and, you know, there's nobody really there to meet them. And there were some of the wounded guys, you said, they're being taken through these sort of covered tunnels. That's certainly what they remember. One of them in particular who said, you know, he remembered coming home and being taken off the plane in a wheelchair, I presume, or perhaps on a stretcher, and being wheeled through a covered tunnel so that nobody could see them. And he said it made him feel a sense of shame, as if people were ashamed to look at on the wounded and I think uh, certainly that was an experience which he it's a quote someone uses saying I mean I think it was of another war but saying you know, it would be like showing the uh, wrecked cars at a motor show or something yeah absolutely that was when they when so uh, in the aftermath there's a quite a lot of criticism of the Thatcher government when they initially they don't invite disabled veterans to take part in the victory parade and that's just a, a member of the public who makes that comment but yeah it would be a bit like having there does seem to be a pivot at that point mm. doesn't there which is you know again, to me was surprising that it's quite recently that you know wounded veterans have said well, you know what what was the initial reaction that you know Mrs Thatcher had because obviously she was coasting on it and she was yeah. our boys and you know hooray this is a mighty victory waving flags she had much more resistance than one remembers to that didn't she it's very interesting i think in a way the the falklands is on a turning point really so as it's happening it was really talked about in the register of being a national war a kind of a war in which all of britain is involved but of course it's i still remember john craven's news round little (laughs) moving little figures on a map Exactly, exactly. And it's it's the powerful legacy of World War Two is it's still defining the way in which war is, is, is spoken about. But I think in the aftermath of the Falklands, there are changes to the way in which war is commemorated, which carry forward into the into the contemporary period. So, you know, one of the examples is that just sort of Thatcher's ready assumption that you don't have to think about wounded people in a victory parade. It would be unthinkable now to overlook disabled soldiers in that in, in that way. But I think, you know, perhaps the other sort of most marked 
change is the repatriation of bodies from the combat zone. I think when they go out to the Falklands, nobody particularly expects that that's the way it's going to work. The assumption is is that, you know, in Britain's military tradition, soldiers are buried where they fall with other soldiers, a corner of a foreign field that is forever England. But after the war ends, there's quite a bit of pressure, partly from... It's from the son, yeah, <laughs> rather than the families of the people. Exactly, it? yeah. It's partly from the families, but it mainly it's from the tabloid newspapers and this kind of sense that families aren't being treated well enough in the aftermath of the war. So I think Thatcher decided very quickly that she would allow a repatriation for families who who requested it. So there wasn't the kind of ceremonial attention to it as as now we're accustomed to seeing in Wooden Bassett and so forth, partly because it's several months before the bodies come home. Where was it that that idea of repatriating bodies first sort of came from? Because I mean, one remembers Vietnam seeing the body bags coming home. Was that? It must have been. I think some bodies are brought back from Suez as well after in in the aftermath. Oh, but that was because of the anxiety, because of the... fears of security, not as a kind of decisive change in in military practice. But it's odd. It's sort of you know, it, it now feels like an absolutely unalterable tradition. But it's a new. I know, but it's a new tradition, and it comes then. And I think it's got a lot to do with well, it's a it's a social change, isn't it? The idea that families should be taken much more into consideration in the aftermath of the war. I mean, it just wouldn't have been possible with the numbers of dead in World War One and World War Two to have granted so much kind of individual recognition to, to soldiers. Do you think that's because, relatively speaking, fewer soldiers now die in wars? Of course. So, you know, when the civil service look into repatriation, it, you know, this isn't decisive in their, in their deliberations, but it's not going to be too costly to bring the bodies home because there aren't really that many of them. And there's also a lot of hangovers from the way it's always been done or the Second World War thing that, you know, families were getting medals in kind of jiffy bags. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the disbursements of compensation to families still quite surprisingly really along that, you know, rank and class lines, at least, weren't they? Absolutely. Uh, Mrs Thatcher intervenes at one point because there's been reports in the press that families have been receiving their medals in jiffy bags and she says, you know, this is terrible, it should be reviewed and the Ministry of Defence replied, well, that's what the regulations state. And it illustrates, doesn't it, how much our mentality has changed since then, because now this looks sort of appalling oversight, but at the time... It's, it's Do some soldiers see this as being a sort of sentimentalisation of what they I mean, I'm, I'm wondering how much within the army there's a view that actually the way it was done was, a, you know, it wasn't all about feely-touchy tabloid relationships with, you know, the families at home and photo ops for politicians. Yeah. Is there resistance to that? I think there is. I, I think there is a sense nowadays that there is sometimes too much sentimentality in the way in which sort of soldier deaths are, are treated. Sometimes soldiers find themselves, or must find themselves because they, they haven't complained about it, I should emphasise, in a bit of a bind. Because on the one hand, I think they actually feel a deep sense of responsibility towards family members. And their remembrance is often about their comrades. And partly, I think, it's because they're mindful of the grief that families have experienced. But on the other hand, I think they feel that there can be a, a lot of false emotion in the general civilian, as they would say it, commemoration of war. You know, one of them said to me something, I remember every day, civilians remember once a year. And I think, you know, it can be difficult to bring those two things together. Yes, you have. I, I think it's somebody you quote saying, they don't like being asked, you know, what's it like to kill somebody? Yeah, I think that there's a quite a deep-rooted view that people who ask that question, perhaps particularly men, are seeking some kind of vicarious thrill that they themselves wouldn't be able to tolerate. Yes, yeah, so I once met a commando CEO who said that whenever he went home, he pretended to be a landscape gardener for precisely that reason. Right. <laughs> the question of battle shock and PTSD goes through this. I mean, 
it's still, you know, we now, you know, as I think you write somewhere, you know, we now more or less routinely expect people who've been through combat to suffer PTSD or to, to, you know, have psychological difficulties. But still, after the Falklands, that wasn't true, was it, really? No. And again, I think this is probably one of the ways in which the Falklands is a watershed. What I found interesting was that when they... You know, immediately on coming back from the Falklands, the military's presumption is that there's been a uniquely low incidence of traumatic-related breakdowns. Their very deeply held presumption is that men who have been highly trained won't have trauma. So they see a difference between, they know that there's been, trauma has been discussed a lot in the context of Vietnam. They see conscripts as being different than professional soldiers. You know, they, they see this sort of emphasis on small group cohesion as inuring men against battle shock or or trauma. So it's only really in the later 1980s when people start challenging those presumptions and actually then people start saying well the importance of comradeship could actually exacerbate a sense of loss or grief after the conflict if well that's one of the things that seems to come through yeah exactly yeah exactly the the lingering effect of sort of witnessing friends die and i mean there's a a story about somebody one of your people you interview comes home and immediately leaves his family and goes and yomping up on the Scarfeld Pike or something with five or six of his mates. Absolutely, absolutely. It's another thing that several people have said. It was very difficult to be in the company of their wives or their girlfriends again. They wanted to be with other people who'd experienced the same thing that they had. And some of them also kind of fell apart 20, 30 years after, didn't they? I think that's right. And I think there was and probably still is a lot of stigma attached to having either PTSD or or just difficulties related to traumatic experiences. I think a lot of people found that, you know, they were having nightmares or uncontrollable outbursts of emotion, but they didn't want to address it and so sort of suppressed the symptoms and threw themselves into very very common they throw themselves into obsessive hard work ludicrous quantities of fitness or they drink very heavily and some of them uh, take drugs so they suppress or manage the symptoms but then at some point face a kind of crisis that means that they that they can't ignore the symptoms anymore and that can be you know very often that can be sort of 15 20 years after the conflict this is stepping slightly outside the you know the ambit of your book but do you have the impression that we now manage all this stuff better that we've learned from that that soldiers who are coming back from Afghanistan say? I think that they've certainly learned something. I think people are much more attuned to the idea that trauma might happen um, and they're kind of, they're given a sort of decompression period, aren't they, coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. But I don't know if fundamentally that there's a strong association between, you know, breakdown and unmanliness and I don't know if really that that has been undone. It should be. Do you think that's a feature of the way we, if you like, socialise or acculturate soldiers in order to make them into soldiers? I think it must be, mustn't it? I think it must be. So, you know, that idea of giving your whole being to, to become a soldier, to become a soldier, to become a man, that might have changed a bit, but I think it's very difficult to kind of to get away from it completely. Do you think there's another way of doing it? Or? I don't know. I think they're... I think you have to assume that there must be. There must be a, another way of doing it. I'm sure it's presumably in countries like Israel where women serve in frontline yeah. troops. They, do you have any impression they do that differently? Or? They must address it differently because they, you know, they, they can't put such a high premium on the idea of sort of masculinity and soldiering. There is an aspect of this book also that's at least a memoir or a family story. You describe, for instance, you know, your memories of your uncle's funeral. I mean, do you have strong memories? You were quite young when he died, but do you have strong memories of him? I don't have very strong memories of him, I'm afraid. I was seven when he was killed. You know, he was only 19, but he was a, a you know, an older figure who occasionally played with us. But I do have very strong memories from, firstly, from finding out that he'd been killed 
my mother coming into the room in tears to tell me that that she just had the news that he was dead and um I do have very strong memories from from the funeral because it was such a well at the time I assumed that's what funerals were like but you know we were in the hearse kind of driving behind a gun carriage being pulled very slowly my uncle's coffin on it there were soldiers in the carriage the streets were absolutely lined with people and it did leave an impression on me and then I think I always was aware of the sadness that it caused particularly for my grandmother so my grandparents were separated and um my my grandfather who was 61 in 1982 he lost his job shortly before the Falklands and after the Falklands he he never worked again he drank far too much he took to drink and he he died uh, at the end of the 1980s but you also see you know and there's that thing of the sort of grief lashing up through a generation because you describe how he had he'd moved he left your grandmother to live with another woman and then he kind of drove her away didn't he yeah yeah absolutely so he was living with somebody else and and she couldn't put up with him he kind of yeah I think he came from that kind of generation of men who weren't at all accustomed to articulating their feelings who didn't really expect very much out of life except work and obviously you know he needed a woman to take care of him because otherwise he didn't have a clue or didn't have the desire to kind of take care of himself so he drove his new woman to distraction and she eventually kicked him out and then he he lived in a bedsit and he couldn't really look after himself at the end of his life he was quite alcoholic and um was sometimes found out in the streets he's unable to kind of find his way back to to, to his flat and your grandmother sort of gave up didn't she my grandmother again comes from the, the same generation born in the 1920s had a sort of rural country upbringing she was a very cheerful person a very humorous person but I think she didn't expect very much from life and I think she always seemed to have this kind of rather bizarre sense of shame about what had happened to her so she came from a generation where you know she felt it was shameful that she hadn't kept her husband and in some kind of strange way she seemed to believe that she was being punished for what she saw as the failings in her life which is quite a difficult kind of legacy to to live with I imagine. I mean obviously you're you're delving into some very personal stuff in your family how did your father react to the you know your sort of digging all the stuff up was he when you described going to the Falklands with him at the end of the book? I think that my father and my other uncle also I think they're very pleased to have this much attention devoted to their brother who was killed I think they both have a sort of a sense of guilt a sort of sense of survivor's guilt that he didn't have his life so I think that they're glad to to have this kind of opportunity to remember him in this way and um, for that reason they're willing to (laughs) not to tell me what they think about the rest of the book (laughs) well I guess that wraps us up Helen Parr thank you very much thank you very much you were listening to the Spectator's Books podcast. Um, very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you. 